Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. To have Santillas Chingaypi with us. Um, her article on law enforcement and racial profiling appeared in the Saturday paper over the weekend, which you might have read. Uh, as Santilla writes in that article, in recent weeks, racial profiling and police brutality have come under renewed scrutiny in Australia in the wake of the global Black Lives Matter protests. Policing styles here matter, and she joins to us to speak more about it. Thanks so much, and welcome back to Triple R, Santilla. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure, you know, speaking to you both. Yeah, thank you. And uh, I mean, you write uh, about police methods in this article, and I found it really um, riveting, actually. Um, you speak of predictive tools and risk-based systems, and I thought, why don't we just dive straight in? Um, what are these, and, and how significant are they in, in policing in Australia? Yeah, I mean, this is all new to me as well. Like, I've um, been reporting on... Um, policing and criminality, specifically in Victoria for like almost over a decade now. And um, I wasn't aware of um, these uh, so-called predictive policing tools. And so information gathering um, and intelligence is not new when it comes to policing. But what is new is the technologies by which um, the police use, uh, you know, that they use to gather this information. And with predictive policing, it's essentially using a, a wide array of um, systems um, like facial recognition, um, social media monitoring, CCTV footage. And what these um, systems then do is that they will feed them all of this information about an individual, and the system will then analyse this data, and the algorithms will be able to determine whether or not they think an individual is likely to commit a crime or is likely to reoffend, um, And that's why they're called, you know, predictive, because that's what the algorithms are doing. They're predicting. And um, the argument is, is that these tools are preemptive and that, you know, being able to monitor um, individuals on these, um, by the, with these systems would mean that, you know, you, 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 you minimise the uh, eventuality of crime. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, it's, it's really interesting because in, in some ways, you know, it makes sense and, and we would sort of hope that police would be using data and, and research and um, robust methodologies to decide where resources are allocated and all that sort of thing. But what you describe in your article is, is kind of more, more troubling, where people can be um, stigmatised and, and so on because of their, um, their skin colour or, or the extent to which they align with a particular demographic that seem to be, um, you know, more likely to commit crimes than others. Yeah, and I think that's where it gets really, really interesting because, you know, a lot of the experts that I spoke to said that they've observed with um, systems overseas that um, these, you know, the use of these tools tends to amplify racial bias. Um, and you know, anyone that sort of works with AI technology will, will say that, you know, the, the way these systems tend to be built um, are sort of unequal in that way. And so in Australia, we don't really have... Um, uh, there's not a lot of publicly available information that give an insight into how these tools are being used here. And the only exception where that is is in New South Wales. And in that jurisdiction, um, a, a few researchers a few years ago to an FOI request, and this is where it also gets... 
a bit complicated and sort of shrouded in secrecy because to to get um, transparent data from the police forces, um, it's either through uh, court cases or through FOIs. You know, so they're not forthcoming with this information. Um, and that's where really the questions arise. So it's not so much don't use these tools, it's can we have a bit of uh, transparency or some level of um, independent oversight so that there is some accountability into how these tools are being used. And so in, in the New South Wales example, um, this system that these researchers were looking into after uh, requesting this information is called the uh, Suspect Targeting uh, Management Plan, or STMP. And the system apparently operated for about 20 years. New South Wales Police Force say they're now using a new system of the uh, STMP. Um, and when the state's police watchdog investigated um, the claims that, were, that, that, that arose as a result of um, what those researchers found, they determined that the system disproportionately targeted young people from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander backgrounds. And they couldn't agree on what the figure was. So the watchdog came up with a, a figure that was incredibly high. I think it was something like over 70%. Um, but then the police said it was somewhere sitting somewhere between 40%. So there's not no consensus into exactly how um, impacted these communities were, but obviously they were being disproportionately affected. And in one instance, um, a nine-year-old uh, Aboriginal child who um, had never had a history of uh, criminality before was identified by this STMP, and as soon as he was on the system, he was charged more than 90 times, you know? And so these are the sort of um, things that keep coming up with, 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 with the available information that we have um, into, that give an insight into how some of these tools are being used here, but it's really hard to, to say how they work across different jurisdictions. And, I mean, you've contacted police departments to ask explicitly about these methodologies or, or processes and what was the kind of responses that you got? I mean, I only... I, I, I went to two jurisdictions because my the, 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 the article focused in New South Wales and Victoria and it was pretty much the same, you know, not necessarily forthcoming um, operational reasons is, is generally the argument um, that they can't get into it. In New South Wales' case, because they're trialling um, a new version of the STMP, um, they said they couldn't really comment any further on that. Um, so, I mean, you know, like a lot of the uh, lawyers that I spoke to continue to argue, it is really about accountability and the fact that, you know, if these tools are being used, um, they should be some oversight, some independent oversight um, that gets a sense of how they're being used and how they're targeting people. And if, the, and if there are some discrepancies coming up, you know, there's a mechanism by which that can be um, uh, sorted. But uh, unfortunately, you know, the lobbying continues in that regard for, for a lot of these community legal centres that are doing the hard work. And, and really, I should, I, should, I should say that, you know, the work of community legal centres is incredibly commendable because what they're doing with very little funding um, to bring some of these issues to the public's attention um, is, is truly, truly remarkable. Yeah, and it's kind of you know interesting to be having this conversation in the context of the the Black Lives Matter movement, of course, but also um, you know coming years after there have been some moves to um, increase police transparency on these sorts of issues. There's the the case um, in Victoria, which you note in your article, the Hale Michael case, which was settled, which was supposed to lead to more sort of training and and more robust procedures being implemented by Victoria Police to reduce racial profiling and so on, um, and also 
also the Australian Law Reform Commission um, report, which you, you, you mentioned as well, um, which, which hasn't, where the recommendations have not been implemented in terms of uh, reforming police complaints procedures and so on. So do you have any sense of whether change has actually happened, change that we haven't seen that is, has addressed the more sort of latent, um, you know, systemic racial bias that has been suggested by some of these investigations? I mean, Victoria Police, as a result of that um, uh, settlement, that racial profiling settlement, um, agreed to like a, 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 a significant number of reforms um, in their uh, report. You know, they, they went through a couple of phases. So the first phase was from 2016 to about... from 2014 to 2016, and we're currently in the second phase. And part of that has been a measure, you know, a whole range of processes and practices and piloting programs and things like that. And they do release a report every year that sort of details um, what they've implemented. Um, but I think the concern for a lot of um, community legal centres that I've spoken to in terms of police accountability is also just the use of that data and how that data is collected. So as a result of that case, um, what was, what, you know, what the lawyers learned out of that was that race was being used in some cases to sort of record incidents of crime. That doesn't happen anymore. Um, Victoria Police says that that doesn't happen anymore. But again, you know, there, there's the argument within within um, within some of the legal advocacy groups that there has to still be a way in which they determine, um, you know, the differences in, in, in the population. So if you're not using um, race, what indicators are you using? Um, and that sort of information is what they would they would they would like access to because I think they think that it would it would just it would just ensure that you could you could hold police accountable and you could you could because you know when you're talking about institutional racism and this is um, something that's very interesting and in, in, because that's the whole reason for the Black Lives Matter mm. global protest it comes down to systemic and institutional racism and a lot of the conversation in many ways has sort of been um, distracting from. The, 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 the core or what's at the heart of the issue and you know no one can deny that institutional racism doesn't exist in this country you just have to look at data across health across education across housing and you will see that um, first nations people are disproportionately affected in every one of those areas and that in itself is racism right but again because of how we talk about and think about racism it just always is in that um, overt understanding of it. But racism manifests in different ways and, and, and the different outcomes that people have um, is because of that. And, 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 and when we're talking about how do you ensure that everyone's getting an equal opportunity, it is about how do we ensure that within these, these institutions where some of these biases exist and where, we, where we're seeing disproportionate outcomes, that we start to fix some of these things. And, and some of the ways that we can fix them is through accountability in, in, to some extent. It, it, it comes through um, training, awareness. There's a whole bunch of things because you're, you're essentially unlearning um, a way of operating. And um, that's, that's, that's really what's the heart of, of, of addressing institutional racism. But it's, it's a very complicated conversation to really um, get into the mainstream in Australia because we're still debating, you know, are we racist? Is this racist? Um, and there is so much denial about um, the experiences that a lot of people in this country have. Um, and that just means that some of these issues, um, you know, we move on from them, you know. And the next report that comes along that 
tells us the same thing, um, we say that, no, it must be something else. It, it clearly can't be because of um, the, this person's skin colour. And yet we know that it is because of the person's skin colour. So... And as you, as you um, highlight, and as many of us are, are learning, some for the first time, how many uh, uh, studies have been made into this issue? And I should remind people, we're speaking with Santilla Chingayapi, and we're um, discussing the issues raised in her article over the weekend called Law Enforcement and Racial Profiling. And we're hearing more about the 1991 Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody with its over 300 recommendations. Uh, and few of these have been implemented. Um, you've, we've already mentions the Australian Law Reform Commission um, findings that were a lot more recent than that, just a couple of years ago. And we've also recently heard a New South Wales mother calling for accountability, police accountability, following the really brutal arrest of her 16-year-old son in Surrey Hills, New South Wales. And, I mean, maybe we can focus in on um, police accountability a little more. You've mentioned it, Santilla, and it is a recommendation in um, the studies that... I've just mentioned that this be looked at. Where are we at yeah. with it? Do you think? Do you, do you think we're starting to make some I, I progress? I mean, with that, um, so that uh, law reform commission report that you you mentioned. I mean, that was uh, initiated by the former attorney general George Brandis. Um, asked the um, ARLC to look into the overrepresentation of um, indigenous uh, people in the criminal justice system. And, you know, they, they, they did all the work, um, handed down this report, and, you know, I think that was in 2017, if I'm not mistaken, and the government's yet to respond, you know. Um, so the issue is, in many ways, is, you know, is there political will to see these um, uh, problems solved? Because I, like I said, I, I've been reporting on these issues for over a decade now, and I can tell you they are people on the ground that are doing incredible, incredible work to ensure that we start fixing some of the um, issues that are, that, are, that are showing up in our communities. But there isn't enough political will. But also, I think, I, I, get, I guess what's really wonderful about, about this Black Lives Matter movement and moment that we're in is that there is now a greater awareness of what institutional racism looks like, um, which means that now these stories are seen for much more than what they used to be seen. You know, I think, um, like I said, seeing the shift in how people are now looking at these and recognising that, oh, actually, this is not just any other news story um, has been a really good thing. And so hopefully that from citizens and individuals who have power through, 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 through the ballot to really, you know, put pressure on um, their political representatives, um, I, I think it's, 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 it's a great thing. And, and hopefully that awareness um, magnifies and intensifies and people, yeah, and, and, and can be sustained. And, and that then forces um, political action on these issues because ultimately that really is what's going to lead to change um, because the work is there, the studies are there, you know, um, and the solutions have been outlined by people that work in this area tirelessly to, um, to, 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 to change things. Yeah, and what's, what really, um, you know, came through to me from reading your article was that, you know, there's some things that we, we should be doing right now that are very sort of clear to get behind in, in terms of implementing some of the recommendations from, from that report and so on and having more sort of independent complete, uh, police complaints procedures. But with the increasing, um, you know, seemingly experimentation with these new technologies, there's a real concern 
um, that, you know, without full knowledge of exactly how these are being implemented, but that there'll be a systemic kind of racist bias in the very technology that's being used um, and, uh, you know, used by, by different police departments. Yeah, and, and, you know, obviously we know that um, unconscious bias exists, right? So already the humans that are feeding in that information are coming in with a, with a bias. And actually the system in itself... Um, is likely to amplify some of those things that already exist because that's just what um, technologies do. And like I said, I think when you look in the space of um, uh, artificial intelligence and technology and some of the concerns that have arisen from the use of those tools and systems is that there is um, an amplification of racial bias um, in countries around the world where where, um, these predictive policing tools are being used. In the UK, um, I think they use something like the, I think it's called the gangster matrix. And in in, in LA, um, you can see that disproportionately the people that it is targeting um, are people from racial minorities. So it is cause cause for concern and and, and it is... um, Something that I, yeah, I mean, all, all I can do, obviously, my job is just to report on something and bring uh, the issue to the public's attention. What happens after that is not something that I want to mm. um, control or predict or anything like that. I think, you know, the information's out there. <laughs> do with the information as you please. Um, but, I, but, but like I said, what I do hope is that there is more awareness with some of these stories and, and, and the fact that um, when you have groups of people being disproportionately impacted by it, it is a telltale sign of um, institutional racism and, you know, beginning to address that ensures that we don't see the kinds of things that, you know, our Aboriginal brothers and sisters have been trying to tell us for not just years, not just decades, but for centuries, you know, um, about some of the injustices. And it, and it, it really comes down to that. It's about, you know, um, we, if, if, we, if we have the same rules, the outcomes should be the same for everyone, but unfortunately they're not. Um, and, and yeah... Thank you so much for um, explaining that so eloquently, Santilla, and for discussing your article with us on Triple R this morning. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks, um, Santilla Chingaipi, and she's an award-winning journalist and filmmaker. And if you want to find out more about uh, her article, you can catch it online. Um, if you didn't pick up the paper on the weekend, it's called Law Enforcement and Racial Profiling. It's in the Saturday paper. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. We are, of course, not here to provide financial advice on Triple R, but as we come to the end of the final natural year this time round, We've been wondering if lodging a tax return to the ATO is going to be as straightforward for people this year due to the pandemic shutdown, working from home, and of course, payments such as JobKeeper and JobSeeker. Um, we're particularly interested in some of the new areas that we might be wanting to pay attention to, especially those of us working in the arts and entertainment industries, which have been hard hit. So we've asked Meredith Fannin. She's Director of Dark Wave Consulting, and it's great to have you on Triple R. Meredith, Welcome. Thank you. It's um, much of a year. And um, as mentioned, we don't often talk tax on the grapevine, um, so forgive us no. if we ask very basic questions. Um, <laughs> That's okay. That's fine. Um, but first, will this year be different um, to last financial year for many of us, do you think? Yes, it will be very different for, I would say, pretty much everyone. Um, there's been a lot of changes, obviously, with a lot of people needing now to work from home. Um, a lot of especially um, arts and entertainment, hospitality, tourism businesses, haven't been able to work at all since March. 
Um, so their income is completely different. The way they do things is changing rapidly. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be very, very different to previous years. So certainly um, it's not going to be very much a same as last year sort of scenario for, for tax, unfortunately. And before we get to exactly kind of what can and can't be claimed for people, what sort of advice would you give if, if people, you know, have had to purchase new things Um and maybe aren't accustomed to kind of keeping really accurate records of of their spending on sort of work related things and that sort of that sort of thing. Okay, so um, basically the um, idea is generally that you have to have actually spent the money. So if you have been, if your say employer has paid for it on your behalf, you can't claim it. If it's been reimbursed, same deal. If it's been say a present from a family member or something like that, again. You can't claim it. Um, so essentially the money has to have been spent. Um, certainly um, you can still claim everything that you would normally claim, especially for, um, say, people in arts or entertainment businesses, musicians, um, creative artists, circus performers, absolutely everyone, even though a lot of them may not be actually performing at the moment, a lot of the costs to do with still maintaining their business will still be relevant. So um, they can still certainly claim all of those. Um, the difference really will be that there's some things, for example, travel won't be as high. We don't expect there's going to be as much um, claims for, say, things like motor vehicle. But then we expect that home office might go up for a lot of people, especially if they've had to work from home. Yeah, and I mean, you mentioned sort of musicians there and bands and people who do run these kinds of businesses, um, arts businesses, may have lost money, um, like perhaps if you invested ahead of shows and then kaput, um, things did not pan out as planned. Does that change things from a tax point of view, Meredith? No, look, they can still, anything that they've paid for, even though those shows didn't go ahead, they can still claim um, as a deduction against their their other income. Um, there are some things like non-commercial loss rules that might come into play. Um, so they will depend on whether they've got other salary and wage income or whether they're what their turnover is, um, if they, and what sort of entity structure they're in. So if they're in a sole trader, then there might be different um, rules where they can maybe be able to offset their loss against other income. Whereas, say, if they're in a company, then that loss is just going to get carried forward to the next financial year where they can hopefully recoup it against future profits. And, and just a follow-up to that, so people's income might have changed. I mean, we've heard, you know, for, for some people, they've actually ended up with, with more income than they might have expected because of the, the JobKeeper yes. payment. Yep. And so JobKeeper and, and JobSeeker are considered income in the same way as if you'd, you'd received it in, in the way you were before the pandemic? Look, yes and no. So job PBS, so JobKeeper is essentially, depending on how you were paid it, if you're a sole trader and you're paid it through, um, then that's still going to be claimed as um, ABN income under your sole trader business. Um, or if you're in a company or a trust, then same thing, it's going to be income in those entities. If you are on JobKeeper as an employee, it's just going to form part of your normal um, pay-as-you-go payment summary that your employer will lodge with that ATO so that it will automatically flow through into the return. If you're on JobSeeker, that's through Centrelink, so that's a little bit different. That will get reported. At, there's a, a government payment section in the tax return and it just gets reported there. And so the ATO has created a shortcut method for calculating 
accommodating work from home expenses within a, a particular yep. time frame when the, the coronavirus really forced us into shutdown. Can you talk us yep. through how that actually works and I guess whether people would be advised to use that method because it might be easier or actually engage in the sort of more tricky method of, of calculating each individual expense? Yeah, so if you um, aren't particularly fond of calculating receipts and uh, keeping receipts and, <laughs> uh, and keeping them um, and you know, calculating four areas and things like that, then the 80 cents per hour method, which came into effect from 1st of March, is probably the best method to use because it's really very simple. It's based on the number of hours that you worked from home. Um, you can't claim the hours, say, if you were stood down but were still being paid, then they're saying you can't claim those hours or if you're actually on leave but getting paid, you can't claim those hours. But the hours that you actually have been working from home, you can claim um, all of that under the 80 cents per hour. The thing that uh, to remember just with the 80 cents per hour is it does include things like phone costs, internet, um, cleaning expenses, um, can decline in value of computer, laptop and other devices, whereas ordinarily under one of the other methods you would claim that on top of the, what is the 52 cents per hour method. So um, I guess you've got to work out a little bit how much you've actually spent and if you, like in your just rough calculations, if you think you really haven't spent that much on those particular items and the 80 cents per method is probably going to be fine to use. But if you know that you, you say, bought a new computer and um, your electricity bills have gone through the roof and you've got lots of cleaning expenses and you use your phone a lot for work, then you might be better off using the um, actual cost method where you're actually calculating all of those expenses and then logging the amount of time that you spend at home over a four-week period. I'm Meredith Fannins with us. She's Director of Darkwave Consulting and we're having a chat about the kinds of, well, the very different um, financial year that many of us, well, pretty much all of us have experienced because of the, the pandemic shutdown and what that might um, mean for tax returns come the end of financial year. And so, Meredith, is there a way that people can um, check their income ahead of time or, or really does it happen at the end of the year and you kind of jump on the website for the ATO and, and have a look there? Look, they can. So from around about now, like if you're, say, a salary and wage employee, from about now your employer will start to lodge through single touch payroll the final payment for the year. Now, what will happen is that when they log on to MyGov, when 2020 comes up as part of the preview report, that income will start to show up on there. So they'll be able to see that. They'll be able to see if they're on JobSeeker, they'll be able to see that through Centrelink. The HR at this stage has said that they won't um, show the JobKeeper payment if you're on a uh, ABN. So you would have to calculate that part yourself. Um, but certainly some of that information will be available to, to people ahead of time. And you mentioned just before the, the depreciation method for calculating um, the, the costs of buying a new computer. Mm -hmm. I know quite a few people have probably done that because they've had to have sort of constant Zoom meetings or maybe, you know, if they're an artist or musician, they've had to kind of stream their performances and that required some, some new equipment. How exactly does that work? So it depends on whether you're an employee or whether you're running your own business and then running it through a sub trader. So if you're an employee... Um, if the cost of the item is 
over $300, so if you, say, bought a $1,200 computer, you have to depreciate the cost of it over the effective life, which is usually for a computer is around about three years. But if you're in business and so you're running everything through your AVN, then you can claim the full in the year of purchase. So um, it's going to be different depending on what, what they are, whether they're an employee or whether they're a freelancer and running their own business. I feel a little bit like we should have offered talkback for this, but we haven't because I'm sure there's lots of questions that people listening have and would love us to ask that we're trying to like, you know, trying to channel them. But I mean, you, you said right at the outset, Meredith, that really it's a kind of a sector by sector situation. People have been affected differently in the pandemic, whether they're a sole trader, as you say, or whether they're running a business, whether they're in hospitality or whether they're in the arts and, and so forth. Uh, does the will the tax office be looking at people in that sector by sector way with with different rules, or really will the the process that they've pulled together be kind of a single pathway for many people? Look, it's it will be fairly similar regardless of the industry that you're working in. I mean, sometimes, like, certainly for musicians and performers, uh, some of the deductions they claim are not the same deductions that someone working in an office can claim, for example. But um, in terms of how everything is going to work from the uh, 80 cents per hour method to job seeker, job keeper reconciliations and those sort of things, that is not going to change regardless of the industry and it's going to be um, the same across the board. And how do you imagine things being for, for your sector? Because there there might be people out there who, you know, have never really thought about claiming work from home expenses and that sort of thing much before. Do you think there will be people sort of drawing upon the expertise of accountants perhaps more this financial year than they, they felt inclined to previously? I think for realistically for people that are just salary and wage, the ATO have got a very informative dialogue now on their website as to what they can claim and how to calculate the home office. Um, and, and they've essentially now put it in quite, um, I, I, I guess, layman's language so that it's not all kind of technical legal jargon that people look at and go, I don't actually understand what they're trying to say. Mm. Um, they they're very much have said, these are the things you've claimed. And they've also put in things and sort of said, look, you can't claim, for example, on their website at the moment, they have said things like if people were homeschooling their kids and they can't claim the iPads and the desks and things like that associated with that, that they can't claim coffee, tea and milk and other general items that they normally maybe would have in their office, but because they've been working from home, have sourced themselves as saying that's not going to be claimable um, and obviously anything that's been reimbursed by their employer as well. But then, like on the same token, and especially for people that work in, say, hospitality industries um, or in retail where they've had to maybe buy uh, extra protect protective equipment and things like that, then we expect that those costs will probably go up this year for, for those people as well. Um, so generally, I would say that it's probably going to be about the same. We don't actually expect that there's going to be more people that will need help than usual. Um, but I think what normally happens, especially with just salary and wage employees, is that they will look at, um, they'll try and do it themselves, and then if they get stuck, then it's normally when they'll try and, like, they'll contact an accountant and say, look, I tried to do it online, I got stuck, I'm not sure, mm. I need help, and then other people are quite happy to do it themselves. Yeah, and... Um I think a final question, I'm trying to just peer across at Dylan and see if he's got more as well. But um, with regards to superannuation, now this is something that um, 
I was, you know, quite unclear on. Like when people are receiving JobKeeper and, and JobSeeker, are those contributions continuing, Meredith, or is this something we are going to see a bit of a, a hole in people's super savings associated with this period of, of their working yeah, lives? So there, there, yeah, so there isn't any uh, super on JobSeeker. And for JobKeeper, if they're just receiving a JobKeeper amount, they do not have to pay. Your employer is not obligated to pay super. But we have seen a number of, um, say, businesses that we look after where they have still come in and said, no, actually, we still want to pay the super on top of it. We know we don't get reimbursed by DHO for that part, but we are happy to still pay it. So it's very much a case-by-case basis, but they don't have to, um, they're not obligated, the employers are not obligated to pay it. Um, so, yeah, it could it could well make a... Um, make a dent in super long term. There's if for people that have taken out super, um, there is on the government's money website there's a little um tool that they can use where they put in the amount that they're withdrawing and then it, set, it calculates based on their um how old they are, how much they think that's actually going to cost them in um in super retirement age. So it's a really helpful tool that they can use um just to see whether it's going to be worthwhile or not to take it out. Thanks so much for being with us and um, I'm sure we've covered a lot of ground this morning and people probably have more questions, but it's been really um, valuable having you. Thanks, Meredith. Not a problem. Um, Meredith Fannin there, she's um, Director at Darkwave Consulting and um, helping us out with some questions around the difference in the kind of tax year that we're all having, um, well, experiencing right now. I mean, it's almost the end of June and it was interesting to hear from Meredith that uh, if you're not sure what your income's going to be, you're probably able to see it uh, in on the ATO website if you kind of log in in the normal way and I know a lot of people will be wondering you, you know what their taxable income is this year whether they've got the ability to to donate more I mean there's a lot of causes out there uh, asking for more funds so you could probably have a look and see that right now. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.